we're um, chuntering our way through a book in the Old Testament called Ezra. And um, the word identifying uh, is a word that I don't remember using 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. It's a word that's become much more uh, common in our language at the moment. And for me, it's a word that is often associated with pain, with sadness, with difficulty. It's about folks struggling to feel valued and recognized and wanting others to try to understand them. And lots of us uh, will perhaps have different ways in which we would identify ourselves. And um, we've done some talks before about identity, and we're going to come back in this story as to uh, something that I found quite startling that the, uh, the people say in answer to a question. Ezra and identifying as a servant. The book of Ezra is about um, the people of God who had lived in Jerusalem, but through their own foolishness, their own disobedience, Jerusalem had been overrun and they had been taken over by the Babylon, Babylon Empire and they had been shipped hundreds of miles and put, taken into captivity. Uh, and uh, lots of the stories that we may be familiar with, things like Daniel and Esther and uh, Boney M, all of those things happen in this time when they're in exile by the rivers of Babylon where they sat down and they remembered Zion. And... Ezra is uh, written, probably written by Ezra, but he doesn't appear till the end of the book, but he's writing about stuff that happened just before his time. And he's talking about people returning. And as they returned, they came into conflict with the people who were already living in the land, who were described as enemies. So they were coming back to the land that their, their parents or their grandparents had left 40 or 50 years previously. And they're coming back to rebuild the temple because the, the new emperor, the Babylon emperor, has fallen and it's been taken over by the Persian empire. And the, the, the Persian em, uh, emperor, originally Cyrus, he inherits all these Jews that are in his, uh, in, in dispersed. And he thinks the best thing to do is send them back to rebuild their temple. But they're going back not to a deserted land, but to a land where other people had made their home or people who hadn't been taken into captivity had stayed. And these folks uh, perhaps feel threatened in lots of different ways. And we looked at this a few weeks ago when we talked about enemies, but perhaps they were threatened by the loss of influence, all these new people coming back and uh, there's more of them. And people are always threatened by folks arriving. Perhaps they were threatened by the loss of opportunity. Perhaps they felt their jobs were going to be taken. Perhaps they were threatened by the challenge to their behaviors because those who had remained had not kept a, 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 a pure and devout form of the Old Testament lifestyle. They had compromised with the other religions and the gods around them. Whereas those who had gone into exile and were returning were those who had kept to the Old Testament standards. So perhaps there was a challenge and a conflict that these folks felt. So they, they, they were against the rebuilding of the temple. Perhaps they were jealous of their joy. Um, lots of us struggle with happy people. And perhaps that's what they objected to. We don't know. Maybe they felt that it was an offense to the gods that they followed. Maybe they were worried on behalf of the um, Persian Empire that the building of this temple to Yahweh would offend them. 
And so they came to a standstill. The work of rebuilding the temple had stopped. And we looked at this last time. We talked about how God uh, wants us to complete things and how there is a, uh, we're designed to finish the job. We're created to finish jobs. And we uh, tend to feel dissatisfied when we can't and when we give up halfway through. When we get to the point where we've done it and it's completed, then that's uh, part of how we're made. So that's where we pick up the story and uh, where they've begun to rebuild the temple. And Ezra chapter 5. At that time, uh, this guy, the governor of the land that's there, um, and their associates went and asked, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? And what, how, who gives you the right to come back here and rebuild the temple? This is some time after Cyrus because they had given up for uh, probably 10 or more years because of the opposition. And now they're starting again and a new set of people saying, who are you to come and do this? Their legitimacy is questioned. And it got me thinking about maybe there are times in our lives when people would say to us, what gives you the right? Who said that you can perhaps care? What gives you the right to step into a person's life and seek to befriend or seek to uh, care or speak up on their behalf? What gives you the right perhaps to pray? I don't know, but maybe there are some among us who have felt the difficulty of people's... We feel that God is asking us to do something and there are others who are saying, who are you to do that? So these folks ask the temple rebuilders, a really, really scary question. What are your names? And uh, none of us like that. That's why we, in so many different shapes and forms, uh, we don't want our identity known. We like to do things anonymously. Who are you? Now, they don't answer that question. They don't give the names in exactly the same way. And we're going to come back to the answer that they do give. Because these enemies send a letter to the new... Cyrus has died. There's been another emperor, Xerxes. And now there's another emperor, Darius. And they're going to send a letter in a few verses' time. But we read these, this description of what's going on from Ezra. He says, The eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews. And they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. So when God had asked them to do something, even though there was opposition, because God wanted it to do, his eye, I love that phrase, his eye was watching over them. He knew what they were going through. And he wanted them to prevail. But it didn't mean that they were protected from the difficulty of it. It was hard. Here were these people opposing them and saying, what gives you the right? And tell us your names. We want to write down. A bit like, some of you will remember Dad's Army. It's a bit like that moment where the U-boat's commander and Mannering says, don't tell them, Pike. And people go, ah, what is your name? Who are you? And it's this scary moment. So although God's eye was watching over them, they were not immune from anxiety, from pressure, and from difficulty. And when God calls us to things, he watches over us. But that isn't 
a sort of cotton wool around us that means everything is pleasant and the butterflies float by and the birds sing. It means that he will bring to fruition what he wants to do in our lives. But it may be difficult. It may be opposed. So then we read, this is a copy of the letter. So he's, we're not, I'm not going to read every verse to you, but he sends out a letter in Ezra 5. He sends a letter to Darius. This is the governor of the land. He's saying, I want to know uh, why these guys are doing it. And the report sent to him is read as follows. This is Ezra 5, 7. It says, to King Darius, cordial greetings. Um, that's good. That's probably just the official language, lost in translation, I expect. But notice this bit. The work being carried on with diligence is making rapid progress under their direction. He couldn't fault their effort. They were doing a good job. They were, he, he, he spotted their diligence. And there may be people who oppose how we do our job or the job that we do or the care that we give. But let them not be able to question our effort and our diligence. They may not like what we're working towards, but may they have to be able to say, whatever it is they're doing, I have to say, they're doing it well. Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Actually, in the context of this verse, he's talking about being a slave and doing it uh, working for our, those of, uh, uh, for whom we are in slavery, doing it to the glory of God. And I wonder what it is that God has placed in our lives this week to do. And we can do it half-heartedly, particularly if nobody's watching, nobody's going to check up, nobody's going to say thank you. We can do it for people perhaps who we irritate us, the boss or the manager that we don't really like, so we could cut corners or the clients or the patient. We can do a half-hearted job. Or we can say, I'm going to do this as if it was God. I was in prison and you've visited me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. Jesus says, whenever you did these things, you did it for me. However we respond to other people, we do it for God. Anyway, he goes on in this complaint uh, to Darius. He says, look, we questioned the elders and asked them, who authorized you to rebuild the temple and to finish it? We asked them their names so they could write down the names of their leaders for your information. And this is the answer they gave. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that the great king of Israel built and finished. I'm just going to draw an aside for a moment in this week of COP26. Their description of God is the God of heaven and earth. What does it mean when we believe in a God who is not just the God of heaven, but of earth? This is his world. This is his creation. His world. And there are two kinds of views over what it means for God to be Lord. One perspective would be that if he's Lord, that means that everything that happens is his will and that uh, nothing can happen that isn't his will and therefore the world will be okay. 
I personally don't think that's what the Bible intends to say because what the Bible is really saying when he's saying his Lord is he will punish all that is done that is wrong. He will judge all that is done that is wrong. To say that he's God is means that he has the authority to come back at a point in time and say, the way you looked after the world and my people in it was wrong. And that what was done was not what he wanted. And so this fortnight we want to pray and we did that this morning in our services you can catch our call to prayer with Mark and Heather and Kath and please go in and join in with that and pray around this whole area because the implication of God being the God of heaven and earth is that it's our duty to fulfill the first command that mankind was given to care for the planet and uh, using the resources of Tear Fund and uh, some teaching from Pete Gregg in our 8.30 call to prayer really helpfully expanded that. He is the God not just of heaven. He is the God of earth. And he will judge how we've looked after it. It is our responsibility to honor his creation If I gave you a Christmas present, that would be rare and unusual. <laughs> if I gave you a Christmas present and you said, it's mine to do with what I want and I can trash it and ruin it. And if I'd given you that Christmas present with an intention that you would pass it on to your children and your children's children and that it would be a blessing to your whole family. But you decided that it was your Christmas present and you could do what you wanted with it and you trash it and spoil it and it's in the bin by the middle of January, I'd be hurt. And if I'd made that present for you, I'd be angry. And I've seen on stuff of Christians who are feeling this is not our thing to be concerned about. I think it's very mistaken. God has asked us to look after this world because he is the God of heaven and earth. Father, will you help us to guide and challenge and encourage politicians and businesses that we may care for the planet that you have made that sings to your glory. that we may be fit for your return. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Anyway, that was a little digression which I wasn't intending to do. <laughs> so uh, this is really where I wanted to go. He says, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. Remember, they asked this question, who are you? And give us your names. And what authority are you doing this? And their answer, and this is the answer that the, the, their enemies had heard and understood and received and were sending in this message to Darius. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. Why did they choose to de define themselves, to identify as servants? Because that's what they are doing. When we, say, when we identify as something, we are saying, this part of my life is the thing that connects and holds everything else together. It's the thing that is the most important thing that defines me. And that's why sometimes I grieve over the way folks feel they need to identify, because... 
It's to do sometimes with just a part of life. And it's a challenge that we've talked about. Kath and I did a, a questions of life about it. We talked uh, in, um, in, a, in other sermons about this. What it means to identify as a servant. It is by far the most common way in which the people of God in Old and New Testament describe their relationship to God and define who they are. Again and again, Paul, Peter, John will begin their letters in the New Testament from a servant of Christ. They are choosing a submissive status. Remember that in their culture, you didn't just say, well, I'll be a servant for a couple of months and then I'll hand in my notice and do my own thing and start my own business. If you're a servant, it probably is what you did for the entirety of your life for the, probably the same master and you gave up all your rights. And they are not talking about being enslaved. They are talking about choosing to be a servant of God. They're choosing to say that God is one who is far, far greater than us because he is the Lord of heaven and earth, because he's the one who created us. And he's given us a mission and a role and a purpose. And they have given up an ownership of their life. They have surrendered and said, here is my life. And my life is now dedicated to the agenda and purposes of the God of heaven and earth. I am his servant. I'm not for my own life. I am for his. And that provides a purpose, an individual calling for all of us. We are chosen people, chosen as Israel was chosen, chosen to do something, to be his people. We've been equipped with different skills and gifts and talents. From the moment we were conceived, God had purposed good works for us to do. Ephesians tells us in advance the things he wanted us to do. That use our unique combination of skills and our unique um, experiences and our unique temperaments. And he says, this is what I want you to do with your life. And so for them to de define themselves as servants is they're saying, we've bought into this. We're not our own. We've been created for something higher than this. And our goals are not our goals. We're not here to, to make ourselves wealthy. We're not here to make ourselves uh, the, the most powerful and popular, successful people. We're here to serve God. Now, if you are with us last time, you'll know that they were challenged on this because they hadn't been doing it. And they'd used the prophet Haggai who challenged them on this. And they'd got the message. You can hear that in our last session, our last talk on, uh, on our YouTube site or website. And because they were servants, they were being directed. They had been directed to rebuild the temple. You and I would be directed in different areas. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to serve the purposes of the kingdom of God. And we'll explore that in a moment or two, what that might mean. And in becoming servants, they were taken on the values of the master. We're very unfamiliar with this concept. Uh, but if you had visited, I don't know if you watch those, I don't, I'm afraid. I don't do, I'm a very simple person. I don't do board games and I don't watch um, period dramas. But if you were to watch a period drama with a stately home and the upstairs, downstairs, that's how old I am, uh, the, the servants and the masters, um, what is that program that lots of you watch? That's, that's the one, Downton Abbey. Never seen it in my life. 
But if you were to go to a, I'm so out of touch. If you were to go to a home, a stately home, 50, 100 years ago, and the servant was to be rude to you, was to be ungracious, was to be unwelcoming, you would take that as an insult from the owner of the house. Sometimes we do that in, in the shop, don't we? You go into a shop and you get bad treatment and you think Mr. Marks or Mr. Spencer or Mr. Smith or Mr. Amazon has treated you badly. But often we don't. But in their culture, if you're a servant, your very behavior gave an insight as to the master. And so, when they were saying we're servants, they were saying we buy into the, all the values of the master. We will live in his way. We may think, well, I don't want to be a servant. I'm not going to choose that. That seems like a loss of so many things. But there were some things that they gained. They gained significance. They gained a sense of importance to what they were doing. They were gaining the ability to look back at the end of their life and say, I did what I was made for. I did what God called me to be. I was who he wanted me to be. I haven't uh, wasted this one solitary life and the breath and the skills and the talents. But they were able to look back and say, God has used me. And my prayer, as lots of you know, so often for all of us is that when we get to heaven, we will be able to say, or hear God say, well done, because we did what he asked of us. It's unique to all of us, and it isn't spectacular. It isn't changing the world. It's changing the people in our world, or at least offering a love that would change them. And we'll come back to that in a moment. And as we choose to be servants, he guarantees the filling of his spirit to equip us and to resource us. He guarantees the gifts. He guarantees that we will have what we need, the words at the moments of pressure, and he provides his strength. For some reason, I'm always much more interested in establishing my rights than in determining my obligations. That's the problem, isn't it, with our culture? We're so hung up about what we deserve. We're so hung up about what we should receive. And we're so angry about other people not doing what they ought to for us. We don't think about what we want to do, our duty, our obligation. Richard Raw says this, history is continually graced with people who have been transformed and somehow learned to act beyond and outside their self-interest for the good of the world. People who clearly operated by a power larger than their own. So what do we do that serves God? What can we do that serves God? I want to suggest six things that uh, are um, drawn from the way the Bible talks about serving God. I haven't given you the specific verses for them, but there are loads of them for each one. They overlap and they intertwine, but I'm doing this because many of us will say, well, I, I don't know how to serve God. I don't know what that looks like in my life. I want to be a servant, but I don't know how to do that, and I feel inadequate, and I feel my little life and my job and my family and my friends and my routines through the week, how do they function as a servant? Six things. Firstly, God calls us to glorify him. 
Now, what does that mean? What it means is we live such a life that people go, I like your God. We live such a life that it is attractive to the God that we confess to follow. The opposite is quite simple and easily seen where people, would, where people live a life that people say, well, if that's Christianity, if that's Jesus, if that's God, I want anything to do with it. So God asks of us, if we're going to serve him, we say, I'm going to set out to live by his values and I'm going to set out to live a, a life of generosity, of compassion, of mercy, of gentleness, of kindness, of truthfulness, of forgiveness, all the different values that we see embodied in Jesus, we're going to say, I want to live such a life that people at my funeral say, I liked his God. Rather than, I wouldn't have anything to do with what he stood for. So we seek to glorify God. And the second thing is, is, is we could all have said is to love our neighbor. because we don't mean the person who simply lives next door to us. We mean the people who we will rub against um, metaphorically. Don't rub against people literally. That's unpleasant. I mean generally the people who we will encounter through the week. That we love those God has placed in our lives. Whether we like them or not. Jesus was asked, uh, who do I know who my neighbor is? And he told a story about two people who didn't like each other. One was a Jew, one was a Samaritan. If we serve God, we commit ourselves to love the people of this week, to love the people tomorrow, the difficult people, the awkward people, the people that frustrate us, and the people who we feel there is a need for us to care for, and the people we need to show mercy to. And the people who perhaps we need to provide for. So to, so to be a servant of God is to glorify us, to love our neighbours. Thirdly, is to simply to offer our resources, the, the time that he's given us. To say, Lord, here's my time. Here's my energy. I'm, uh, put me to work. Here are my skills. Here is all that I am. Here are my possessions. Put me to work. Here is my money. If you were with us last week, you'll know that I mentioned that at the end of this month, we're going to have a church meeting. We will be considering the nomination of Deb Lydon to be put forward by our church to the Baptist Union as a Baptist minister. And we want to encourage uh, that decision. But also in the church meeting, we will be thinking about our budget for the next year. And I need to tell you, it's quite tricky. Our finances are quite under pressure. And so I invited the folks last week and I want to recommit that uh, invitation. I want to invite you to pray about the finances of the church as we lead up to that church meeting. And if you're able to adjust what you give, to start giving, that would be brilliant. But could you pray that we can stand alongside those, those who are not able to give and that together we would provide all that God needs Loads of other things to be giving to. Our food bank is having huge demands upon it. Remember we had harvest, um, when was harvest? Three weeks ago? I need to tell you, all the food at harvest went by the end of the week. We need that amount of giving to, to our food bank every week, not once a year. We used to have harvest and it would last at least a Last a week. That's the demand of people in need. 
And the fourth thing that we're asked to do as a servant is to act justly. What does it mean to act justly? It means to act in a way which makes the world better for all. For all people. The hungry, those who are likely to be victims of climate change, those who are discriminated against in our community, marginalized, those who are discriminated against around the world. How do I serve God? I seek to live a life that's attractive. I seek to love my neighbor. I offer my resources and I act justly and I bear witness. What does it mean to bear witness? If, if you've ever had to be a witness in a court of law, what happens is they tell, say to you, what did you see? They don't ask you to argue. They don't ask you to come up with clever arguments as to what it means. They don't ask you to say something that you don't know. Somehow or other, we've got very confused in, the, in what we think witnessing is. It is what it says on the tin. It's to be able to speak openly and honestly about what God has done in our lives. To be able to say, yeah, I go to church because I find that meeting with God or worshipping or hearing the Bible explained really helps me. That's witnessing. And then if somebody says, uh, how on earth can you believe the Bible? You say, I don't know. Why don't you come to Alpha? You don't have to have an argument. We're asked to bear witness, not to argue. Maybe you, you simply say, I've been praying and it's really helped. I've found that God has given me strength. I've found a peace that passes all understanding. I've found support from my Christian friends. Whatever it is that's the truth, we're asked not to hide it, but to share. And the last thing we're asked to do is to pray and stand in the gap between the world and God, to be the priests. We're, we're called, all of us, to be priests, to stand between and to bring the needs. Doing what you do with care, presence, and intention is a form of prayer, the very way to transformation and wholeness. I want to um, ask some questions, then we're going to go in another bit of Ezra and respond together with Sheila. Um, But these are the questions which we'll come back to in a moment or two. Who do we serve? And have we chosen to be a servant of Jesus? In the immortal words, of Bob Dylan, we all serve somebody. Have we chosen it to be Jesus? Or is it ourselves? Are we serving ourselves or Jesus? Or somebody else that we're frightened of or want to impress? Where is Jesus asking us to serve him and how might we serve him this week? We'll come back to that in in a moment or two, but I just want to share one other part of this story. Remember, they're sending a letter to Darius. They want to know who on earth these people are that are rebuilding the temple. And uh, they've they've asked them who they were, and their answer was, we are the servants of the Lord God of heaven and earth. And they also tell these people who question him that they've had to rebuild because of the sins of the past and how they messed everything up. And then they tell them that Cyrus had given a decree, if you remember in Ezra 1, Cyrus had given a decree that allowed them to rebuild the temple. So these folks are asking Darius whether that's really true and whether they were allowed to rebuild the temple. Um, And so they say, 
say, if it pleases your king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did in fact issue a decree. Remember, this is the Persian emperor who's uh, taken over the Babylon empire. So they've got to go and look in the Babylon things to find out whether this was actually said. So we get into chapter 6, and Darius issues an order, and they search the archives in store at the treasury of Babylon. And the scroll was found, and they find that which we've heard in chapter 1. And um, so Darius uh, sends a, a, a letter back uh, in which he uh, says to the people uh, that everything is to be returned, and he gives an order. Uh, and he says this, stay away from them, let them rebuild it. Do not interfere with the work of God in this temple. And he goes further and he says, look, you're going to have to, you have to pay for them. You, you pay their expenses. I want them to rebuild the temple. He's not a Jew. He's not a worshiper of Yahweh. He's taken over an empire. He's found an old command that the temple was to be rebuilt. And he's saying, yes, rebuild it. And not only rebuild it, help them do it. Give them money. And... Uh, we were talking about money a few moments ago. Our government wants to help and encourage our church. It's called gift aid. And all we have to do is declare, if we're a taxpayer, what we do. So it's a principle that's been around for a long time. Anyway, you think, well, why? Why does Ezra, and sorry, why does Darius want them to rebuild the temple at the expense of the local people why does he want them to do that? He's not a believer. Well, he gives us the explanation. So that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Do this because I think they're going to bless us. And I want them to pray for me. And so the, the order is carried out and followed through and they end up completing the temple, which we'll come back to next time. But I want to just follow up this bit about unbelievers asking for prayer. Why did they do it? Was it superstition? And, and, and to say that I believe that many of us will be in the opportunity or we should look for the opportunity or pray for the opportunity where people say to us, say one for me, will you? When we have any tragedy, um, what do people say on the news? What do politicians say? Our thoughts and prayers are with them. There's something instinctive in humanity in a moment of crisis to ask for prayer and to turn to prayer. And if we're known as the people of prayer, then people will say, it's like they have this idea that we're priests. You know God just a little bit better than me. Will you say one for me? Uh, maybe superstition, but it's very often desperation. Absolute fear. Do you remember a few years ago when the footballer uh, Fabrice Miranda uh, had that heart attack on the football pitch and uh, was in an induced coma for a number of days and there was a T-shirt that, that, that footballers were wearing, pray for Miranda. desperation but it's also these seeds of faith that God has planted in us that in a moment we turn to him as the familiar saying goes there is no atheist in a falling lift 
in a moment of crisis, we cry out to God. And, and that we may be the, 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 the instruments of facilitating that. And it may be that faith is being rekindled. So does God answer the prayers of people who don't follow him? Will God, if we pray on behalf of the people, will God hear our prayers? Will God answer? Well, it's interesting that that this had been forewarned, if you like, that Jeremiah, talking to the people in exile just a few years before, he says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And he says to the people, wherever you are, pray for the people. And then in the New Testament, that's picked up where Paul says to Timothy, I urge you, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for believers, church, Christians, nice people, good people. No, he says everyone. And to spell it out, he chooses the least good and nice people for kings and all those in authority for the emperors oppressing them in a Roman empire that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all goodness. And so we want to be someone who unbelievers can ask for prayer from. And the four things that enable us to do that, we need to be good, have a good reputation. That goes back to this idea that that people said they're good people. We're not gossips. We're not selfish, we're not bad-tempered, we're not hypocrites. Secondly, we need to be people who are known to be already praying. And as we're praying for people, and praying for them. You see, as we pray for a people we work amongst and who God has placed us, I think something spiritual happens where some will say, can you pray for me? It may or may not be appropriate to say, I'm already praying. But yes, I will pray. And I can put our church to pray and put something in our church prayer list that goes emailed out to hundreds of people. But if we're going to be prayers, we need to be good listeners. We need to be those who hear because very often when people ask for prayer, they don't want an answer. They don't want an explanation. They don't want a justification. They don't want someone to explain to them why it's not really God's fault. They just want to be heard and their cry taken into the throne room of God. And we may need to be people who have the sensitivity to offer. And so I want to invite us to pray for those who God has placed us among this week. And one of the things we started to do before lockdown, but we do increasingly in our activities is to use something called Mentimeter. I want to invite you, if you've got a smartphone, to uh, pop it out and uh, to go to menti.com. I want to invite us to pray. The first thing I'm going to invite you to do is just to put the names and initials of uh, someone who is on your heart to pray for. If you're not using a phone, that's absolutely fine. I want you just to quietly... Bring someone to God. And if you've got a phone and you want to use it to put the initials, that act of putting them in is a form of prayer. It's saying, Lord, it may be someone of faith, it may be somebody of no faith, it may be somebody anti-faith, but you know their need.
What do we pray on behalf of our neighbours? We might pray for healing. Very often, uh, and it seems to be uh, not only a New Testament pattern, but a pattern in my experience, that God more often heals those without faith than those with faith. As an invitation and a demonstration of his love. So let's pray for healing for those who we know. We might want to pray for them to have wisdom. We might want to pray for them to be delivered from the problem that they are going through. We might want to pray for them to experience God's comfort and to know his love and arms around them. We might want to pray for them to have strength and to be able to keep going. We may want to pray for them to have faith. We're going to go back to the other computer. I want to pray for those names that are scrolling down. Father, will you hear our prayer? Whether these folks have asked us to pray or whether they're just on our hearts to pray for them, will you hear our prayer? We bring their cries into your throne room and you say, hear their prayer in your mercy and in your power. Come, we pray. And we're going to go on to another slide. There we go. And, and just those things that I talked about, uh, healing, wisdom, deliverance, comfort, strength, faith, thinking of those on your mind, which of those words do you particularly want to pray for them? And again, if you're not using mentor, it's absolutely fine. But just focus in on what you want to pray. Father, hear our prayers. For those who need healing, Lord, bring your healing, we ask, in the name of Jesus. We speak to their bodies and say, be well. For those who need wisdom, we ask that you would provide that, that they would make right choices and wise choices. For those who need comfort, we ask you to surround them with your love and hold them, that they may know that you love them. For those who need your strength, we pray that, Lord, that you would strengthen them and equip them. For those, Lord, who need uh, to have faith, we pray that you would bring that. For those that need deliverance, we ask that you would bring that. For your glory. Amen. Just want to return as we're going to respond together. What does it mean for us to be a servant of God? I'm going to use some songs in Sheila Leaders, enabling us to respond. We'll come back to Menti as well in a moment. Where is Jesus asking us to serve him? How might we serve Jesus this week? Lord, we offer ourselves to you. We feel inadequate, but you equip us, strengthen us, empower us, call us in weakness. Father, we pray that you would help us to live in your strength and to know you equipping us.
for everything you call us to, we do not in our own strength, but in yours. We offer ourselves as servants. May our identity be we are servants of the living God. We're going to go back to Menti as uh, the music is playing and uh, we can pop on another question and just offering ourselves to serve God. If you can just move it on forward for me, Andrew, that would be great. Finish this prayer with as many responses as you want. Lord, I choose to be your servant. Thank you for calling me. Help me now particularly. And then there are those options that we spoke of earlier to glorify, to love, to offer our resources and ourselves, to act justly, to bear witness, or to pray. I want to invite you to commit to God that which you want to do. for ourselves. May our lives glorify you. May we live a life of love. May we hold nothing back in that which we offer to you. May we courageously act justly. May we truthfully bear witness. May we constantly pray.